Welcome to Startup Cornell, a podcast exploring the bold entrepreneurial ideas coming from our students, faculty, staff, and young alumni. I'm Kathy Havis, your host. And today we're going to talk with David Stein, co-founder and CEO of Ash, a company that makes healthcare more accessible and inclusive by offering at-home testing kits. We're excited to hear the story of how he and his partners launched this business from Cornell Tech in New York City, what's next for the company, and what inspires him as an entrepreneur. To find out more about entrepreneurship at Cornell and see the show notes from this episode, visit eship.cornell.edu. And remember to rate and review our podcast by scrolling to the bottom of this episode. That way, even more young entrepreneurs can find the podcast and be inspired to follow their dreams. So welcome to David. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so glad you could be with us today. So why don't you start off by giving us your 30-second elevator pitch about Ash? Tell us a little bit about how you founded it and came up with the idea. Absolutely. So as you mentioned, we launched out of Cornell Tech's startup studio program. I actually launched as a direct consumer company aimed at making sexual health and wellness more inclusive and accessible. And so doing that through at-home testing kits for sexually transmitted infections. I launched and as we launched, COVID hit. And so we were trying to sell at-home STI testing kits to a nation that was being told not to touch each other, which proved to be a little bit of an obstacle. And then I think, you know, kind of at the same time, we realized we had built all the technology, the infrastructure, and the relationships to power at-home testing programs for providers across the board. So we decided to pivot to the B2B side and launch what is now known as Ash Wellness, where we partner with provider organizations, academic medical systems digital health companies, et cetera, to turn on at-home testing programs for them in a white-labeled way. That's awesome. And talk a little bit about how you've decided to initially focus on sexual health as the focus of the testing. And will that be what you continue to focus on moving forward? Or do you have some ideas of expanding that in other areas? Yeah, yeah. So the whole concept for Ash really did start from a personal pain point where I had been contacted by a partner and, you know, had been told, hey, you might want to go get tested for STIs. And at the time was just honestly freaked out and ended up at an urgent care and had an experience where I think my takeaway was just that it was really hard to get tested. It was super stigmatizing and I never wanted to do it again, even though I knew I should be getting tested regularly if I was having uh, sexual partners. And so I walked away from that experience with just a lot of shame and honestly angst in that I was like, I'm one of the most privileged people. I have health insurance. I have a good paying job. I can afford the Quest or LabCorp bill that's coming to me in two weeks, but I don't want to ever do this experience again. And if this is, you know, me with all this privilege around the financial stability to be even to be able to pay for this, what must it be like for people who don't? And so that was really the start of it. And then I think that experience never escaped me. And I ended up moving to San Francisco, joining a number of education technology startups, catching the startup bug and was like, I can do this myself. And so ended up back at Cornell Tech, where I came together with three other co-founders around the idea of making sexual health and wellness more inclusive and accessible. And similarly to me, they had also had pain points in their own ways in accessing inclusive and accessible sexual health. And we came around the idea of starting in the sexual health space, actually exclusively focused on the LGBTQ plus or queer communities. And so we launched, as I mentioned, as a D2C brand and launched as COVID hit. And so hard to sell STI testing kits, 
when everyone's being told to socially distance. But I think at the same time, realized there was a huge opportunity in market uh, for at-home testing programs across the board in that providers could not bring their patients in in person to labs, clinics, hospitals during the pandemic. And we had built kind of all of the required technology relationships and infrastructure to power these testing programs. And so pivoted as a result to the B2B side. And I think through that, realize that, you know, we can expand beyond sexual health. And by doing so, we can just make all of healthcare more accessible and inclusive by bringing it into the home or wherever someone is most comfortable and is most convenient for them to do at-home testing and self-testing, really. And so since then, we've partnered with about 15 different enterprise organizations to turn on at-home testing programs for them, and not just in the sexual health space. So we run over 150 different types of tests now in all 50 states and run programs in women's health, sexual health, skincare, uh, fertility, et cetera. And so it's not just sexual health anymore. That's awesome. So the organizations that you work with, B2B, are, I know that like universities and other places. So these are people who are trying to help their employees access these kinds of services, but are some of them also like tests that are required by employees for some kind of a like drug testing or anything like that? Or are they mostly like just healthcare offerings that the employees want to have or the employers want to offer to their people? It's not um, exclusively with organizations providing it to their employees. However, we do have some contracts where it is that case. But I'd say for the most part, it is organizations that have a virtual offering for telehealth or telemedicine. And as a result are, you know, doing telehealth consults, video visits, and are then having to order labs as a next step in the care continuum. And so in non-ASH kind of environment, they're sending people to Quest or LabCorp blood draw. And for when they're working with ASH, we'll send them an at-home testing kit that's white labeled for that organization. So it looks like it's Cornell University's testing kit, not to say we're working with Cornell University. Right. And I'd say just generally the testing programs where we've been most successful are testing programs where the diagnostic test is a gatekeeper to follow-up care or prescription medication. And so a great use case or example of this is PrEP. PrEP's the once daily pill to prevent HIV. To be on that medication, you have to get tested quarterly for STIs, for liver function, and for viral hepatitis. And so as a result, you know, patients who want to be on that medication so that they can lower their risk in contracting HIV, they need to get tested to dispense the next round of prescription medication. And so a lot of the use cases where we do really well is when testing is that gatekeeper to the follow-up care. And this way they can just do this at home rather than having to go into a clinic and get a test every quarter or whatever. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I know you mentioned that at the beginning, the pandemic was obviously a challenge because people were not spending any time together. But do you believe that maybe the prevalence of outcome like COVID test has made your idea more acceptable or more popular like going forward? It feels like now like taking that home test is like everybody knows how to do that. A million percent. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, I think a lot of our success has been writing out the tailwinds of COVID in that at-home self-testing, self-collection of samples, providers ordering tests on behalf of their patients to do at home, payers reimbursing for those same tests has been popularized because of COVID and become way more accepted than it ever was before. So much so that even now 
that people can go back to clinics, labs, and hospitals for at-home testing. They prefer not to. So it has a million percent helped our business. Sounds like you are already doing 150 different kinds of tests. What are your priorities right now, or what are your main focuses? That What are you trying to do? Do you want to expand into more organizations, or, or what are you working on right now? Yeah, I think we launched Ash, as I mentioned, as a D2C brand. And our mission from the get-go was to make sexual health more inclusive and accessible and expanded that to just making healthcare more inclusive and accessible for, you know, in the realm or in the means of at-home testing programs. And we want to continue to do that. And so we pride ourselves on being able to work with organizations, provider partners, hospital systems, and health systems that are actually expanding access. And so that's something that we measure, and that's something that we consider when partnering with you know, providers across the board to just make sure that by doing all of this, we're not just making at-home testing accessible for the 1% who can afford to pay out of pocket for whatever tests they're ordering. It's within a system or has end payers that are covered with by insurance or public health money, whatever it may be, so that it actually does make healthcare more inclusive and accessible. And I think that's something that we think about constantly, especially now where we have a ton of inbound sales and people are coming to us and asking to turn on programs and we have to pick and choose who we prioritize and turn on first. And that's definitely something we think about. Interesting. So you actually are looking into the companies that want to work with you to make sure you're choosing companies who are their own methods are inclusive and accepting of Absolutely. And I I would say on top of that, too, you know, the other kind of factor that we think about and look at is that it's clinically necessary testing. So testing that the end data is going to actually be useful to the patient or the clinician who's providing follow-up care. And so we're not selling one-off tests that, you know, we're then partnering with a snake oil salesman to sell some ointment that will do nothing for no one. We really want to make sure that we're affecting chronic disease areas that is just making long-term healthcare outcomes better. And we really do believe because we've seen it over the last two years in the work that we've done that we can make long-term health outcomes better, adherence higher to staying on medication like PrEP, as an example, and make it more inclusive for communities that had never had access to these kinds of services or the ability to even go get tested in the first place. So there is evidence to show that some of the tests that you're offering, if you hadn't been offering them, people might not get them or they might put them off or they might not be able to afford them or there's like it could actually improve their long term. A hundred million percent. Yeah. I'd say like PrEP. So PrEP, again, is the one say pill to prevent HIV. The, I guess, commercial name for it is Truvada or Discovy. We work with a number of organizations who do PrEP prescriptions and HIV management and all that kind of stuff. And I'd say just in New York alone, over the last 18 months, we've gotten over 10,000 people on PrEP. And of that 10,000, I would say about 60% had not been on PrEP before. So it was the first time they were enrolling in PrEP through a digital health provider. As a result, like it, it was so accessible. It was so easy for them to get to order to their doorstep because of whatever it may be, stigma, you know, no time off work to get to the lab or clinic or hospital or whatever it may be, or just the financial barriers to doing so that we've been really able to drive impact across that. And we're doing prep programs in all 50 states. I'd say on top of that, a lot of the funding sources that those same providers are using for PrEP is through a federal drug subsidy program called 340B. And it subsidizes 
specialty drugs that are on the market for providers who have an incentive to get people on that life-saving medication. And as a result, they have money to spend on testing or marketing to be able to find those patients, acquire them, and get them on this medication. So just the whole kind of system and chain has made it a lot more accessible. So did you head to Cornell Tech with this specific idea for a company? I mean, you said, you know, this is an issue that that affected you earlier on, and then you went to Cornell Tech, or did you have an idea for, you wanted to do some kind of entrepreneurial company and this kind of bubbled to the surface? Yeah. So I would say I came to Cornell Tech with the idea of doing ASH in its original form, which was direct consumer at-home testing for STIs. And the goal was like, how do we make this covered by insurance? Because there were a lot of other players out there doing at-home testing kits, not to say they were like aimed at the queer community or super comprehensive tests, but they were super expensive and as a result, not very accessible. Um, And so our goal was like, how do we partner within the existing system to make this super accessible and started on the D2C site? But obviously everything has evolved and our business has evolved since then, but did come there with the idea for the D2C kind of at-home testing company. And did your partners also have an idea they wanted to do something, obviously entrepreneurial at tech, or did they have a healthcare interest or... How did you meet them? Yeah, I think, you know, what's funny is of my three co-founders, there's four of us total. None of us have a traditional healthcare background. And so I was able to, I guess, bring the team together around the idea of like, we had really all had in our own ways, personal pain points and accessing sexual health services. And we all come from pretty different backgrounds. My one co-founder, Kyle, who's our chief product officer, grew up in Texas, had more or less no sexual education growing up and came out of the closet after college and was just like lost and didn't know what to do, where to go, how to kind of even navigate the world of sex truly. My other co-founder, Mio, who's our VP of design and brand, had a different experience in that, you know, she grew up on the West Coast in Silicon Valley, super liberal, ended up at Brown, also super liberal, had this whole like experience that empowered her around sexual health. And as a result, made it clear like how inaccessible and uninclusive it is for so many other people that don't find their communities at Brown or whatever. And then my fourth co-founder, Nick, similarly actually also grew up in Texas and also had no uh, sexual health education and that kind of stuff growing up. And so just noting all those things, we were able to come together around that idea. And I think it's what's driven us forward. Very interesting. And how did you decide that Cornell Tech would be the place to, I mean, obviously have, they have a real focus on startups, but what drove you to Cornell Tech? I was working at the time in San Francisco at an education technology startup and working with, honestly, a number of MBAs from Stanford. And I, as a result, had just become, you know, accustomed with like what MBAs are and what those programs do and who they produce and all that kind of stuff. And all of the people from Stanford were incredibly impressive people. And like the, my boss and the people that I was working with were going on and doing impressive things. But I was like, I'm not one of those people. And I don't think I can afford in more ways than one to take two years off to do school. But I did want to go back to school to kind of have that career pivot into starting a startup. And so I at first was just looking for one-year programs. And then I often call it fate. I met an alum from the Cornell Tech program at a party in San Francisco. And she told me all about the program and startup studio. And I basically went home that night, read about it and was like, this is it. 
and it's the only program I applied to and I got in and yeah, the rest is history. And do you feel like, obviously you met your co-founders there, so that's a huge advantage. Were there other just advantages of being in that environment and having, were there mentors there or people you connected with? I mean, I think to your point, first and foremost is I found the most incredible co-founders and we're all still doing Ash and together and feel eternally grateful to have had the opportunity to meet each other within Cornell Tech. And one of our co-founders, Mio, actually came from the joint program with Parsons. So she was doing her master's degree in data visualization at Parsons. So all of that has been incredibly helpful. But I think beyond that is like being in New York City itself, being amongst the startup scene here, which has grown immensely over the past couple of years. And you have this insane campus, like that's a shining star on the side of the city that everyone looks at. And so when you're going to these events around New York City and when you're meeting people and trying to raise money or, or hire employees, whatever it may be, people know about Cornell Tech, even if just because they know it's that like crazy cool campus building. on the side of Roosevelt Island. Yeah. So that itself has been incredibly helpful. So do you feel like when you look back at your undergrad and even time before that, that you have always had these ideas that you wanted to be an entrepreneur? Or do you think that you also have some tendencies to maybe one day you might want to work for someone else, like a pharmaceutical company or something like that? I think I kind of always knew, but I had to have some cementing, you know, experiences to get to where I am. And so, I mean, out of undergrad, I went to go work for IBM. Um, so arguably like one of the biggest companies in the world and, uh, you know, lasted there just under two years and was like, this is not for me. And then went to two different startups and completely caught the startup bug there. But also in that experience kind of saw honestly, like what a well-run startup looked like and what a less well-run startup looked like. And one of the startups I worked for ended up getting acquired, but it was more of an acquire and they laid everyone off. And so it was like a terrible experience for me, but I still wanted to stay in startup. But I think I needed to like go through those different experiences to know that I could do it myself and learn from all those experiences. Like I really do drop back to every single one of my past professional kind of career points in what we're building here at Ash. And what are some of the skills you think you have as an entrepreneur or what are some of the most important skills you think an entrepreneur has to have in order to be successful and just survive? (laughs) Because it's a challenging job. I mean, this probably isn't very nuanced, but I think having a, you know, mission and problem space that you really care about. And I alluded to it a few times during this podcast, but we're all really motivated by making healthcare more accessible and inclusive. And so everything from working the crazy hours that we do, putting in all the blood, sweat, tears that we do to Ash to make it successful is driven by the fact that like we can see and feel and measure the change and impact we're having on the communities we care about most. So I think just having like a real issue and problem area that you care about is so important because it's a bumpy road filled with blood, sweat and tears. And so you just need that kind of uh, North Star to keep going after. And I'd say outside of that persistence, I think if nothing else, I am persistent. And so be it the journey that is raising money, the journey that it is selling enterprise contracts, the journey that it is hiring talent in one of the craziest job markets prior to the most recent economic downturn, that the very economic downturn now that we're going through, I mean, the companies that survive, the people that make it are those that are persistent and just able to keep going. And so I think that's been 
the biggest learning lesson in all of this is just that's something I'm really good at. <laughs> right. That's a good skill to have in a lot of different fields, but especially as an entrepreneur, I'm sure. So my next question was what your personal mission statement is, but it sounds like you just kind of answered that. It's really focused on making healthcare more accessible and inclusive. One thing I would add there just generally is I've taken this from a few previous, I guess, bosses that I've had, but one of the luxuries that I have in building a company and choosing the people that I work with is that we really only want to work with kind people. <laughs> and so that's something that we hire for specifically. And I'd say beyond that, we've built one of the most diverse teams in tech, period. It's something we're really proud of. And it's the reason I think we've been as successful as we have been thus far. But we're 75% LGBTQ plus for whatever reason. We're 50% female identifying and we're over a third percent people of color. Definitely something that we think about again in just building our team and thinking about how we make healthcare more inclusive and accessible is we have to have a team who is diverse and can understand and speak to those types of communities. How do you interview for someone who's kind? How are you able to like suss that out in an hour? Or are there things you look for in terms of their activities? Or like, that's a great, I think, thing for people to look for. And I wonder like how you have managed to find those people. I think it's, it's a number of things, but I think first and foremost, our hiring process is pretty transparent. And so from the get-go, we're like, this is a salary band we're working with. And we're on a mission to make healthcare more inclusive and accessible. And so if you're looking for, you know, a tech job that is just paying you $400,000 a year to be a full stack engineer, this isn't the place. And so I think we cut a lot of people that way. I would say beyond that, to your point, activities, other things they've been involved in the past and what they care about and don't care about. And then I think the last thing, which is really important, and I, I don't think I understood the importance of this until my previous role prior to Ash was reference checks. People can pick amazing people to say amazing things about them, whether they're true or not. But more often than not, you do uncover quite a bit of information in those reference checks. If someone is, you know, not being fully honest about their professional history or whatever it may be or who they are, it does tend to come out in reference checks. And they don't have people who answer their calls or emails when, when you ask for it. And so we do a lot of that. That's interesting that that's so important as a piece of who you're looking for. Yeah, that's great. So you talked a little bit about your past bosses and things they've told you, but I wondered if you might want to think about or share with us what the best piece of business advice you've ever been given. It's a really good question. Alluding to kind of the whole persistence piece before, but well, two things that kind of go to that. But one is the people that drive the most impact and change and make some of the most successful kind of businesses or companies or people that are just persistent at making that change through road bump after road bump or failure after failure are still kind of moving forward towards that overall mission and stuff. And so, I mean, every time, and I kid you not, we think we like have surpassed the next level of road bumps and we're like, we're finally in the clear and we're, we can smooth sail, like a new road bump comes along. And we went from doing a thousand kits a month 
last year to over 10,000 in February. And like what great success and what great metrics bring back to our investors and all that kind of stuff. But it, it did come with road bumps and scaling. And we're on our, on our way to doing 100,000 a month. Just being persistent and being able to get through all those road bumps and remembering that mission. The other thing is, I think this is some of the best advice I've ever received is like the impact and change and idea that we're progressing and pushing forward and that we're selling at Ash doesn't have to be and isn't like extremely novel or crazy. It's a pretty simple idea. We're sending at-home testing kits to people's houses so they can do self-collection to make it easier for them to collect so that they adhere to it more. And I mean, yes, we built the entire technology layer to power it, which has not been easy, but the idea in itself is pretty simple. And as a result, it's not that hard to sell. People understand what we're selling. People want to buy it. People can wrap their heads around it. And so working on like the MVP, let's say, of these different problem areas is a way easier way to drive real impact and change in a space like healthcare than instead of going after, you know, a huge hairy problem that will take years and years and tons of funding to figure out and you won't survive it. So the health kits themselves, you're not actually inventing the different health kits that have to be sent out. You're just figuring out how to get them from where they need to be to the people and then get the results out. All that logistical stuff, which of course is a big enough problem on its own. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's really fascinating. Right. That's interesting. So I'd love to know a little bit about you as a person, like what you think has helped you in being becoming an entrepreneur in terms of like the tools that you use, digital tools or physical tools, your daily routine, like are there certain habits you have that you think really help you to stay focused and to, as you said, you know, you work crazy hours, which is just on, you know, the way it is. But, you know, are there things that have helped you manage all the responsibilities that you have? The biggest tool, I guess, around this is my team. So been able to be fortunate enough to work with a lot of people that are way more intelligent and capable than me and who have skill sets where I lack. So I think that's been like the biggest reason our team is, has been able to kind of scale to the point that we have with our existing team is we have complementary skill sets. And we thought about that a lot from the get-go in that functionally, if there was no one else on the team. And in the beginning, there was just four of us. We could get the job done with our individual skill sets in that we didn't have a lot of overlap, just enough, but we all had a piece of the pie to bring it all together. And I'd say as we've expanded the different teams and grown to about 20 employees, we've continued to kind of like follow that approach and think about it and think about the different skill sets and complementary skill sets we're bringing to the table. Outside of that, I mean, digital or physical tools, you know, I founder mental health is something that like I'd heard talked about a bunch, but didn't appreciate until being in it. And I can say it's true for all three of my co-founders that it's just hard to do what we're doing. It's like on top of just living your day-to-day life and dating and relationships and deaths and births and COVID and everything that's going on, we're like trying to keep a business alive. We're trying to scale a team. We're managers for the first time. We're founders for the first time. We're doing a lot of the things we've ever done for the first time. And so there's a lot of leaning on each other and being able to 
honestly like vent and have those founder therapy sessions. And on top of that, making sure we take time for that. I'm not going to lie. I don't think we did this from the get-go, but we learned very quickly that we do need to prioritize mental health and take time when we need it, be it taking time off, seeing therapists, working out, whatever it may be. And I'd say just around that, I myself have like progressed to the point where I'm like, okay, I'm going to do therapy once a week. I'm going to try workout every day. I'm going to bring these different parts that aren't work into my routine and make sure that I take time off and have fun and actually have a weekend. And as a result, we're just much better operators at work. So when you go on vacation, you actually really go on vacation and you don't necessarily check your email every five minutes. I mean, I've been preparing a lot for my pending vacation tonight. And in preparing for it, I'm like, I've told my team, I really don't want to check in over the next two weeks. Like if there's a fire, obviously reach out, but I've done all the prep work so that people can get through everything over the next two weeks and nothing's going to blow up hopefully. So yeah. Yeah. But scaling from like a thousand test kits a month to 10,000, then you said you're almost to a hundred thousand. You've obviously had to add a bunch of people and, and that number probably doesn't necessarily seem to be going anywhere but right up. So adding people must be a big piece of what you do all the time. Absolutely. I think like my takeaway of like being in the position I am right now and operating as CEO, everything I do is sales. <laughs> At the end of the day, we're selling the talent to want to come work with us. We're selling the contracts for people to buy our products and services and technology. We're selling investors on the future dream. We're selling our partners on the ability to partner with us and scale with us and all that kind of stuff. And it's just, it's nonstop sales. <laughs> Are there certain business people or business materials like books or magazines or journals or anything and business people who you admire, who you always try to keep tabs on or that you feel are worth following? You know, for anyone listening who is thinking about, I really have an idea for business, you know, but I, I want to know like who I should listen to or what, what I should be reading. I wish I had a better answer for this, but I think a lot of the like initial YC blog posts and materials are incredibly helpful. And every time I go back and read them, I'm like, oh my goodness, yes. Like now I'm actually living it. And yes, that's on the point, on the money. And YC is Y Combinator. There really isn't anyone else I like religiously follow or um, seek out kind of advice from, at least from a viewership perspective. Although I will say like we have a number of advisors and mentors that we've gathered over the last two and a half years in Building Ash that we do turn to all the time, text, email, whatever, just to be like, hey, this is the problem that we just run into. We've never run into this before, thought about it before, et cetera. And so what do we do at this point? And they've been incredibly helpful. What does Ash stand for? How did you choose that name? Yeah, so in building a direct consumer brand, which was originally, we wanted to make a gender neutral name that could apply to anyone and really mean a lot of different things, like nothing and everything all at once. And so when we were looking at the other competition out there as a D2C sexual health brand, we were like, you have your Romans and your Rory's and your hymns and your hers and everything was gendered and everything was in one lane specifically. And so we wanted a very kind of gender neutral name. And as a result, in our pivot, it's carried us to, again, just mean everything and nothing at once. <laughs> so last question before I ask you about how people can find out more about Ash. Is there one thing that most people would be surprised to find out about you? 
in terms of what you do or, you know, your past or anything else? I'm like, I, we should really be asking my co-founders this. Hmm. It's so funny. I get made fun of all the time for not being like an absolute dog person. I'm like, I, my view on dogs and I didn't grow up with dogs, which is, I think a part of it, but it's just that dogs are all right. And everyone is obsessed with their animals and stuff and especially over COVID. So I think that's always something I have to disclose. <laughs> that's funny. And are your co-founders dog people or none of you? Oh, yes, they are. they're all like dog or cat people or any kind of animal generally. And I'm not in that camp yet. Well, that's good that you know you're comfortable with that, and you know yeah, that, you yeah, know yeah, that yeah. that's not the thing for you. Yeah. Okay. So the question I wanted to make sure that I asked because Bert wanted to know is: Have you ever thought, speaking of dogs, have you ever thought about extending this to like veterinary care? Like, are there options for like pet owners to use at home testing? So it's funny. We've been approached by a number of companies who have received insane amounts of money from the VC world in the pet veterinary space to do different kind of pet healthcare things. I'd say the last company that we spoke to was doing like DNA gene sequencing for pets and animals. The reason we haven't pursued any of those contracts is the labs that we work with primarily have focus on like the clinical laboratory space and just the tests, you know, related to that. So they don't really have tests right now. They're validated for, I guess, the pet side. But it's not out of the question. Yeah. And there's a lot of companies working on right. a number of those. It feels like there's a lot of money in that too. But that would be a whole nother like branch of your business probably. Yeah. So tell us how people can find out more about Ash. Yeah. So our website is poweredbyash.com. So idea there is just that we're powering all of these different healthcare brands to do at-home testing kits, but that's P-O-W-E-R-E-D-B-Y-A-S-H.com. Um, and then our socials are, should be all the same as that. And I always say on, you know, all the podcasts we've done is that if we're always open to receiving emails and love partnering and thoughts and comments and feelings about what we're doing. And so my email is just david at poweredbyash.com. I did say some of the best business advice was that it was like focusing on the simple solve and, you know, the easy kind of solution to a problem that a lot of people are having. But what I will say is our vision and, and the future of what we're building and the value we kind of bring to our customers is this technology middle orchestration layer. And so the ability for our customers to just integrate into our API and have access to the nation's leading labs for at-home self-testing fulfillment centers on both coasts and the ability to turn on a testing program that can scale to hundreds of thousands of testing kits a month is the core of our business. And our vision for the future is that we want to be the back-end technology operations and logistics for all things at-home healthcare. And we truly believe diagnostics is just the beginning. Well, thank you so much for visiting with us today. Well, I, I really appreciate the opportunity and thank you both. I appreciate it. To find out more about entrepreneurship at Cornell and see the show notes from this episode, visit eship.cornell.edu. And remember to please rate and review us by scrolling to the bottom of the episode and sharing your thoughts. Your reviews help even more entrepreneurs find our podcast. So a special thanks to Abigail Younger, my editor extraordinaire, and to Bert Odom-Reed of the Cornell Broadcast Studio.